God, here we are. We come from busy, the busyness of our daily lives, from the hubbub of our work and play, and from all the issues of the world around us, and we come to worship you. In this time together, we long to meet you and to feel your presence surrounding us. So envelop us and love us. We long to settle into these moments and hear your voice, to lay aside our worries and our cares and be assured of your presence with us. So come, Lord Jesus, and meet with us today, we pray. In his name we pray. Amen. How many of you are on Facebook? Okay. A lot of you? Okay. How many of you let your friends know today that you were coming to Redeemer Church for worship? Two. All right. One. Maybe one. Okay. Wow. Okay. You know, this is um, uh, an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, uh, a lot of churches grow through uh, uh, the, the most prevalent a reason churches grow is through invitations to friends and family and um, it's a way that our community knows that you're in worship and uh, your friends and your family and people on Facebook so we do invite you uh, to post uh, when you come to service that you are here and uh, that we're, there's something good happening in the life of a church in the community and uh, just maybe just maybe they'll be curious enough to give it a try as well so uh, just thought I'd check Anyhow, uh, we started a new teaching series a couple of weeks ago uh, called um, Basic Questions. It's from the Old Testament book of Psalms. This is a songbook of the Bible that was written about 3,000 years ago, but it does engage some of the most relevant questions that people ask uh, today. And the first question that we talked about two weeks ago from Psalm chapter 1 um, was the question, can I really be happy in life? And Psalm 1 gave us some, uh, some ideas about uh, where true happiness begins. Last week, we looked at something that connected to that first question. The question we looked at is, is there something wrong with me? And we um, found some answers from Psalm 32. Today, we're going to continue the series with the question, will my life ever get any better? And we're going to be looking at two psalms that are very different from each other, Psalm 88 and 89. The 89th Psalm uh, begins quite the opposite from Psalm 88, but here, right from the start, the psalmist is singing the praises of God for God's faithfulness. And he recounts God's faithfulness to his servant David because God made a covenant with David promising that he would establish David's throne forever, and that promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that our lives can get pretty busy and not... Sometimes we just don't uh, think every moment about God's mercy and, 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 uh, and, and grace in our life. It's very easy, especially if we're living a comfortable life, to take God for granted. But this psalm today reminds us that it's a good thing for us to declare the mercies and the faithfulness of our God. And our only hope of being delivered from the pain and the suffering and the craziness of this life is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll get to all that in a few moments as well as uh, sharing a baptism today and confirmation of some of our high school students. So uh, let's pray before we do that. Lord God, in a universe that seems so immense that it's easy to feel insignificant as we sit here today, we know that we are precious in your sight. We are unique individuals who are loved and blessed in so many ways. And we stand in awe of the one who has created all things. And we dedicate this time 
and all of our days to your service. So accept, we pray, our sacrifice of praise and worship to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Maybe you've had the experience of getting into a new television show recommended by a friend, but a few episodes into the show, you're bored to tears, and you're like, am I missing something here? Or am I just not sophisticated enough to understand this? You're just a few shows in and you're asking, does this thing get any better? Or you wonder how the storyline of a movie can possibly end well when it seems to be a real mess in the middle, but you hold out hope that the director and the writers will pull it all together in the end and it'll all make some sense. Someone told me once that the former television show Lost permanently scarred them from confidence in good endings. They kept thinking that one day they'll pull it all together and it's all going to make sense. And they watched and they watched faithfully for six years. And when the last episode ended, it was like, what? They felt more lost than ever. There are a number of Psalms in the Old Testament where it's like you find yourself right in the middle of a bad story. And you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And the question in your mind is, how can this possibly turn out well? Will your life get any better? That's our question for this week. It's a question I hear a lot of people asking. If you're new and just joining us today, as I said earlier, we're looking at the Old Testament book of Psalms and how it answers some of the basic questions that we ask today. And our question for this week, will my life ever get any better? Maybe you personally feel like that today. It's a dark chapter in your life right now. And you're wondering if it's ever going to end. Or maybe life for you is pretty good right now, but you're worried that at any moment it could go bad. Let's look at Psalm 88. Now I want to warn you, this is a, a very different psalm. It, it's not pretty. And the psalmist is really... Uh, pouring out his heart to God. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry to you. Uh, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is full of troubles and death draws near. I am as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. You, <clears throat> you have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help, O Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. Your, are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do, they, do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness, O Lord? I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. 
They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones, and darkness is my closest friend. The end. (laughs) And all God's people said, what? (laughs) That's the last verse of this psalm? Isn't there a part missing where at the end where the psalmist says, but then God, you made everything better. And now I'm happy all the time. Isn't that how the Christian life is supposed to be? How can one of these psalms chosen to be in God's holy and perfect word end like that? Why is this psalm even included in God's word? Well, I think it's included because sometimes our life feels like that, doesn't it? We don't know the specifics of the condition the psalmist was in at this time, but it involves, first of all, personal betrayal. Verse 8, you have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I'm in a trap with no way of escape. Verse 18, you've taken away my companions and loved ones, and darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever experienced pain like that? A spouse who has turned their back on you being torpedoed at work by a colleague, stabbed in the back by your best friend, rejected by your in-laws. Or maybe it's not so much betrayal as it is neglect. Your kids just don't call you anymore. Your spouse is cold and indifferent to you. The psalmist has experienced personal betrayal. He's also been in chronic pain. Look at verse 15. I've been in sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your tears. Most of the pain that I've experienced in my life has had an end point. That's not true for everyone. What happens when there is no end point? The psalmist says in verse 6, you've thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Have you, ever, have you ever been in total darkness? I read the account of an explorer named Ernest Shackleton who was part of a doomed mission to cross the South Pole uh, that got lost for nearly a year in sub-zero temperatures and food was really scarce. And he said the worst, though, was uh, of all of that was the darkness. All of it was the darkness. At the South Pole, the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come up until August And it is a darkness that just covers you. There's no way out. Some people feel like that today. Feel like that about the problems that you're experiencing. Verse 8, I'm in a trap with no way of escape. I read one time when someone gets buried alive in an avalanche, sometimes they just don't know which way to try and dig out. They have been turned around so much with so much pressure on them from every direction they just don't know which way is up. That's how this psalmist feels. I don't even know where to start, God. I've, been given, I've, I've, I've given up praying for the situation to change. In fact, I'm not even sure you can change it anymore, God. And maybe we felt like that sometimes. The marriage is too far gone. My spouse is remarried. The person I had that beef with died, and we can't straighten things out between us. My body has permanent damage. My career and my reputation have been hopelessly destroyed. There's no coming back from this. And then the psalmist is experiencing a loneliness. 
When I've talked to people who have been through intense and sustained pain, they often say that the worst part is the loneliness because even people who love you can't understand if they've not been through that themselves. The psalmist feels like not even God understands what he's going through. It seems, if anything, like God's against him. He keeps saying, Lord, you did this. And I know some of you have been in a struggle where you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. And finally you said, Lord, I'm going to stop praying because it seems like everything I ask, you do the opposite. Verse 15 summarizes the psalmist's feelings. He says, I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Not only am I in pain now, but I have no hope that it's ever going to get any better. This guy is past the question, will my life get any better? He is resolved that it's not ever going to get better. And then he ends the psalm. And we sit here saying, what the heck? That's just about the most depressing thing I've ever heard. But I want you to also notice how Psalm 89 begins. The psalm right next to it, Psalm 89, begins with these words. I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. Verse 8, O God, O Lord, God of heaven's armies, where is anyone as mighty as you? O Lord, you are entirely faithful. You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. You see, for the Jews at this time, the storm-tossed ocean represented the great unknown. The sea was this mighty, uncontrolled power, and God, says the psalmist, is totally in control of even that. Verse 10, you crush the great sea monster. Scholars say that this was a metaphor for Egypt, which was Israel's great enemy across the sea. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, and the earth is yours, and everything in the world is yours. You created it all. You created north and south, Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. Praise your name. Powerful is your arm, strong is your hand. Your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. The book of Psalms is written in part to present us with the enigma of the Christian life. Because we go through times in our life, sometimes long times, when we feel like we're living Psalm 88. And the fact that psalms like this are in the Bible show us that we can be honest with God even in those times, and yet they do not invalidate the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God that is celebrated in Psalm 89. Here's what Psalm 89 assures us of. First ish, God's steadfast love rules over everything in our life. God rules the raging sea, which represents life's most chaotic elements and moments. When the doctor says there's cancer. When there's an unexpected job loss. When there's the random accident. God controls the sea monster. Our most sinister enemy, whether that's an enemy terrorist or just a boss who has it in for us, God is in control. He stands guard at the north and the south. He'll make whatever comes from Mount Tabor in the east or Mount Hermon in the west praise his name, meaning that there is no power coming from any direction that God will not turn into his plan for our life. All of it will lead to the praise of his name. Nothing in this life falls out of God's control. 
Verse 21, the Lord says, talking about his servant David, he says, I will steady him with my hand, with my powerful arm, I will make him strong. His enemies will not defeat him, nor will the wicked overpower him. I will beat down his adversaries before him and destroy those who hate him. My faithfulness and unfailing love will be with him, and by my authority he will grow in power. I will extend his rule over the sea, his dominion over the rivers, and he will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse 33, I will never stop loving him or fail to keep my promise to him. No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word. I said, I have sworn an oath to David, and in my holiness I cannot lie. His dynasty will go on forever. His kingdom will endure as the sun. It will be as eternal as the moon, my faithful witness in the sky. How in the world are these two psalms placed side by side in Scripture? I think that somewhere in the editing room of some ancient monastery, someone said, oh, let's just put these two psalms together. And uh, people are going to have fun with this, you know, for years to come. But the psalmist reminds us that God's steadfast love rules over everything in our life. That's the point. And the second assurance, God's steadfast love is not always immediately apparent to us. The psalmist in Psalm 88 cannot see any evidence of God's love. Even in Psalm 89, 46, he says, O Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your anger burn like fire? You see, we have a tendency to judge God's love for us by the situation that we're in at the moment. If things are going really well, we'll and, and we think we're walking in God's love and favor. And sometimes we're willing to put up with a little pain in the present so that we can, because we can see clear evidence of how God is making it all good in our life. I got wrongfully fired from that job, but you know what? It led me to a better job. She broke up with me, but God had someone so much better in mind for me. But you see, that logic can also work against us because we can't always see evidence of God's good plan working in and through us. And we cry out sometimes in bewilderment like the psalmist, How long, O Lord? We can't always see the end result. And I've got news for you. Sometimes we may never see it in this life. And it's our faith. If our faith depends on seeing the resolution to every issue in our life, we're never going to make it. We are a crisis of faith just waiting to happen. Here's the third assurance from the Psalm 89. God's steadfast love shapes the glorious conclusion of his plan. Eugene Peterson wrote a book on the Psalms in which he pointed out that Psalms of lament, like Psalm 88, are the predominant category of Psalms. How long, O Lord? But the last five psalms, he points out, 146 to 150, um, are all about praise. No expressions of grief, no complaints, just pure praise. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heaven, praise him for his mighty works, praise his unequaled greatness, praise him with the blast of the ram's horn, praise him with the lyre and harp, praise him with a tambourine and dancing, praise him with strings and flutes, praise him with a clash of cymbals, praise him with loud clanging cymbals, let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. It's nothing but praise. And Peterson's conclusion was that 
even the style of the book of Psalms has meaning, and that is that all prayer, prayed long enough, eventually turns into praise. So why put Psalm 88 in this book without mixing some praise in it? Because sometimes our life here on earth feels like Psalm 88 and ends up like Psalm 88. But the story of what God is doing with us and in his people ends in unfiltered and total praise. All Psalm 88's prayed long enough eventually turn into praise. It may not be until eternity when, as the scripture says, God wipes away every tear from our eye. It will be on that glorious day in which, um, in the words of J.R. Tolkien, God makes all sad things become untrue, that we will see it, but it's going to happen. The Apostle Paul compares it to the experience of a mother who's just given birth. When that pain of childbirth is suddenly swallowed up in the joy of seeing that infant. And there's coming a time, Paul says, when the pain of this earth will seem strangely insignificant in light of the glory that God is about to bring in and through our lives. Now think about your own life. If, if we're honest, I'm guessing we can see how God has used some of the pain in our life for good. Maybe the divorce taught you to depend on God more. Maybe the death of that one you loved helped you to refocus your faith. Maybe the lost job woke you up to the life of materialism. If right now, with only our limited distance and perspective, we can already see how God had a good purpose for some of the pain in our life, don't you think that with enough wisdom and perspective, we will in time see his good reasons for everything in our life that happens? I think one of the things we see in the millennial generation today is that many suffer from the ability to appreciate delayed gratification because everything in their world is instant. They, uh, they Google answers to just about any question, text their friends, Amazon delivers the next day, TV provides instant access to the world. But some things in life don't work that way, and maturity is one of those things. It's a longer process. It's not instant. Our generation can see the top of the mountain. We often can't see the mountain in front of us. But God's work in our lives takes time. It takes some Psalm 88s in our life. So let me leave you with uh, so, uh, just a final lesson about Psalm 89. We see God's steadfast love for us in the rejection of his anointed one. In the middle of this Psalm 89, there's this very strange little segue verses 38 through 45 and says i have sworn an oath to david and in my holiness i cannot lie his dynasty will go on forever his kingdom will endure as the sun it will be as eternal as the moon my faithful witness in the sky what's he talking about well this is a prophecy about jesus christ look at the description verse 38 but now you have rejected him and cast him off you are angry with your anointed king. You have renounced your covenant with him. You have thrown his crown in the dust. You have broken down the walls protecting him and ruined every fort defending him. Everyone who comes along has robbed him and he has become a joke to his neighbors. You have ended his splendor and overturned his throne. You have made him old before his time and publicly disgraced him. And then Isaiah, the prophet, comes along and says in Isaiah 53, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. 
And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we would be healed. You know, we can summarize the gospel in four simple words. Jesus, in my place. It's not just that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus died for my sins and your sins. He w- we were on his mind. Jesus was rejected in our place so that we would never have to face that kind of rejection. The great reformer Martin Luther spoke of Jesus' last words from the cross. You may remember them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther said that they are the greatest words in all of Scripture because in them we see that God faced abandonment in our place so that we would never, not in any circumstance or in any situation, ever have to fear being abandoned by God. He walked through Psalm 88 so that we would never have to. So when we feel that God has forsaken us, we're wrong about that. Is Jesus, if Jesus didn't abandon us in the dark hours of the cross, he's never going to abandon us now. And when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, suffering is not considered to be God's judgment on us or anger at us. It's part of his good salvation process working its way out in our life. Tim Keller says, right, uh, suffering is at the heart of the Christian story. Suffering is the result of our turning away from God, and therefore it was the way through which God himself in Jesus Christ came and rescued us for himself. And now it is how we suffer that comprises one of the main ways we become great and Christ-like, holy and happy, and a crucial way in which we show the world the love and glory of our Savior. You know, even suffering in the hands of an ever-loving, omnipotent God becomes a surgical tool for God working out his purposes in our life. So in the midst of our pain, we experience God's love and steadfast presence in our life. And the psalmist says, happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they walk in the light of your presence, Lord. See, the light of God's presence can never, ever be taken away from us. It's a source of joy. I love how David says in Psalm 3, he talks about his problems and he says, Oh Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me, so many are saying, God will never rescue him, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. Notice that God is not giving us glory. He is our glory. Knowing him and possessing him, that's glory. If glory is something we, we want us. Glory is something we often want God to give us. Maybe it's a new marriage or some personal vindication or a new job. But glory is what God is to us. Christ in us, Paul says, is the hope of glory. There's no distant, this is no distant God who promises that one day everything in the, is going to work out. This is a God who has united himself to us in our pain and feels it with us and his presence in us assures us that he has good plans for us. And when we cannot grasp that plan, we just need to cling to his presence. And in the middle of our pain, we are right to pray for the inbreaking of God's love. The psalmist in Psalm 89 calls out to, and asks God to act. He expects that God's going to act. Some Christians act like suffering has no place in the Christian life. And others act like it's wrong to ask God to release us from pain, but both of those are wrong ideas. I know that suffering can be part of God's plan for us, but we also want to see 
God's goodness break into our family, our church, our life, our community. And as believers, we're commissioned not only to endure the suffering, but to bring blessing to others in spite of it. We look at our world today and we say, it's not right that people live in poverty, that people are going hungry, that people are in bondage, that families are experiencing brokenness, that girls are staying trapped in a slave trade. God, why don't you do something about all that? I believe in the goodness of God, so I will yearn for and pray for and work for the inbreaking of God's love everywhere I can. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes we live in a Psalm 88 world, but we do with the hope of Psalm 99 or 89. So let me ask you this morning, what do you do when you feel like your life is never going to get any better than it is? I would encourage you to do two things. One is to pray through the words of Psalm 88. It's okay to pray Psalm 88, to be honest with God. You aren't going to scare God away with your anger or your tears or your doubts. He welcomes all of those things. But then I would like for you to preach to yourself Psalm 89. Try making these three statements a part of your life. I choose not to fear because God is with me. I choose not to doubt because God is in control, and I choose not to despair because God is good. And even in our darkest hours, God is transforming the story of our lives into one of total praise. Pray with me. Holy God, you are faithful, and you are loving toward us, and that never ends. It's as sure and dependable as the sky over our heads. We praise you. We've gathered together in this place today to offer you our worship and our thanksgiving and to to declare to anyone who will listen that you are God and we are your people. May your spirit be at work in us today, healing us of our pain, opening us up to the light of your presence, for you alone are the faithful creator, redeemer, and sustainer. So all glory to you, O God, in the name of Christ.